0: Hello, hello, welcome. Hello there. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Cup of Taboo. I'm your host, Tyler. I'm just your average human being who enjoys learning about true crime and telling the podcast world all about it. So, in other words, I like telling my friends all about it because (laughs) they're the only ones who really listen to me. Hi, guys. Welcome to part two of BTK where I will be discussing the life and times of Dennis Rader and the terrible, terrible things that he did. Quick recap, Dennis Lynn Rader was born in 1945 in Kansas. He was a family man, married to a lady named Paula, but he was a troubled young man with a lot of violent sexual fantasies. He never showed any of this side to Paula or the people he knew that well, so nobody expected him. He stalked women, and in January 1974, he attacked his first victims, the Otero family, where he killed four of the seven family members. He went home and, as though he had done nothing and he acted normal. In April of that same year, he attacked Catherine and Kevin Bright, killing Catherine in her home. Kevin was shot twice, but he survived like a gangster. Shortly after this, he wrote a letter to the police and hid it in the public library. The police attempted to correspond with Rader through the newspaper, but he never responded. The reason he went quiet was because he had a job, and now he also had had his first child. But this quiet would not last for long. I hope that you are ready for your weekly dose of strange, violent, unusual murder served in your cup of taboo. Warning, the following podcast contains graphic descriptions of torture and murder. Listener discretion is advised. On the 17th of March, 1977, Dennis Rader planned to attack a lady named Cheryl, who lived on Hydraulic Street. She stayed with two other women, one named Judy and Judy's 16-year-old sister. Rader thought that Cheryl was, in quotes, loose, because he had seen her partying at a college bar called Blackout. Therefore, this was called Project Blackout. Idiot. What he did is he dressed up in a smart suit, thinking that he looked like James Bond, his words, not mine, and he knocked on her door. There was no answer. So he decided to leave this house, and as he was walking down the street, he saw a small boy walking with a packet from Dillard's. That same supermarket that he had parked the car at with his first murder. This little boy had gone to the shop to get his mother, who was ill, some soup. So Dennis was like, oh, okay. I am gonna I'm gonna try this one and this time his ruse was to use a photo of his wife and their son And he was going to pretend to be a detective And so he walked over to the small boy and he asked him like hey, man Have you have you seen these two the little boy said no and he carried on but Dennis being the creepy creep that he is he watched where he walked and he watched him go inside and he was like yes Okay I can still I can still murder today. Let's do it. So Rader knocked on the door at thirteen eleven, South Hydraulic, where the little boy had gone home. The little boy who Rader had spoken to was the one who answered the door. He recognized Dennis, and Dennis pushed the door open. Shirley Vyan walked towards him because she heard this like weird noise, and she was like, What what are you doing here? And he said that he was a detective. He closed the door, but then he pulled out a gun. Shirley obviously was terrified, and she said that her and the kids were sick, and she begged Rada to leave her alone. Dennis said that he wasn't going to hurt them, but that he had a sex fantasy problem, and that he just wanted to tie her up, have sex with her, take some things, and then leave. So this poor woman was in, you know, in a state. So she lit up a cigarette, and he pulled the curtains closed. The phone rang, which bothered Rader. But they let it finish ringing because he was like, you will not answer that. So everyone kind of just watched the phone awkwardly. And then he started tying the children up who started screaming. So this frustrated him. And he put all three of the children that were in the house into the bathroom. What he did is he chucked some toys and some blankets into the bathroom because he was like, I'm going to make sure that they're comfortable and also busy. Then what he did is he tied the door shut Uh, There was two doors into the bathroom. So the one door he tied closed with a rope and the other one he locked. And then he went into the bedroom and pushed the bed against the door that was leading into the bathroom from the bedroom. So what he did is he made Shirley undress and then he started binding her legs and arms. The children were freaking out. They were screaming for him to leave their mother alone. But he didn't care. He, He just carried on. So while he was busy tying Shirley up, she actually threw up on the floor because she was sick. And Rader said that he went to the kitchen and he got her a nice glass of water so that she could feel a bit better because, you know, he was just such a nice guy. And he wanted to make her feel comfortable still. He wanted her to still think that she was going to be okay. What a douchebag. But after this, after she had finished her glass of water, he pulled a plastic, plastic bag over her head and he tied the cord around it. He tightened the cord and strangled and suffocated Shirley by him. There was a small crack in the door, and one of her children actually watched as his mother was murdered. Rader stole two pairs of her underpants, and he did say that he was stressing about the fact that there was that phone call, because he thought, well, what if the people come to check if they're okay? So one of the little boys in the in the bathroom, I think it was the eldest son, He actually broke the window and the children managed to escape. So they ran straight to the front door to go to try and help their mother, but they were too late. Dennis had left and their mother was unfortunately not alive anymore. The police got the the call at 1pm and, I mean, he, he again attacked in the middle of the day. This guy has got no scum. None. The police noted the similarities between this case and the Otero case and they worked really hard on trying to tie the two together. Rader had chosen to do this attack in March because it was the third month of the year.
1: Duh. Perfect excuse for the
0: murder. He was also on spring break at his university, so he was, uh, you know, a little bored. Well, what else do you do when you're bored, you know? I colour in pictures, Dennis. That's what I do. And I, I clean the house because it's constantly needing cleaning. You don't go murder people because you're bored. But this is what Dennis said about stealing his victim's underwear. I'm going to change my voice because I can and it's going to be fun.
1: Part of my M.O. was to find and keep the victim's underwear. I it at home. Then, in my fantasy, I would relive the day or start a new fantasy. I would don the victim's underwear. Slips, panties, poisony, sexy house coats, I would wear a wig and sometimes a mask and put myself into bondage, as if I was the victim, and finally do self-gratification. Due to the amount and bulk of these items, I kept them in my closet, in a locked suitcase, or in boxes in the shed in clear plastic bags.
0: He was so inspired that he wrote a poem about Shirley Byron. Here it is. Are you ready? We're we're clicking. I'm going to do it. Shirley locks, Shirley locks, wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, not yet be the line, but lay on a cushion and think of me and death and how it is going to be. Just so you know, scream was spelled horribly wrong. Uh, Unless I spelled that wrong in my notes. (laughs) Wouldn't be surprised either way. He ended up sending this poem to the Eagle newspaper on January 31st, 1978. But before that, Rader had picked a date for his next hit. It was going to be December the 8th, 1977. His victim was Nancy Fox, a 25-year-old woman who lived alone. Nancy worked at a jewelry store, and while Rader was stalking her, he even went into the store and purchased some cheap jewelry. And he figured out her name by looking in her mailbox. Like a creep. So she lived at 843 South Pershing, which got Rader all excited again because it had a three in it. Oh my gosh! Yes. Just so you know, if you have a three in your in your in your address, you're not say freaking Dennis Raider. He could she, he could see that she had no dog, no boyfriend, and he also really enjoyed this because that meant that she was alone and easy. He did also mention that her surname Fox sounded like sex. No, it doesn't. But you go off them just because it's got an X in it doesn't mean that it sounds anything like it, okay? So on the 8th of December, he told his wife that he was going to be working late at the library doing college work, which was also true. He got there early to work on his paper. I mean, (laughs) this guy was dedicated, to to say the least. I mean, here I am. I, I am not working a job, raising a child, stalking multiple women, but I still avoid doing my assignments because I have procrastination issues, but he did it all, man. He did it all. So he knocked on Nancy Fox's door, but there was no answer, and he was already flustered because he was running late, so he ran, but went around back and he cut her phone line. He broke in through a window and he waited. He liked that she was so neat and tidy, it aroused him. She had her Christmas lights up, which is really sad. It really upsets me. Man, oh, it breaks my heart. He had a drink of water and he cleaned off the glass, and then Nancy got home, and here is how it went in Rader's own words.
1: In quotes, She came in. She was startled. She asked what I was doing there. After we confronted each other, I told her I travelled a lot. I meant no real harm. I had a sexual problem. I wanted sex. I would tie her up and take a picture. She took her parka off. I believe it was white or cream coloured. As she laid her parka down and began to smoke, I sat on the couch and she sat in a chair, west side of the living room. She was upset. We talked for a while. I went through her purse, identifying some stuff I'd want to take. And she finally said, Well... Let's get this over over with so that I can call the police. She sealed her doom for sure when she told me she would contact the police. I wore no mask or anything to hide my face. I had to kill her. She asked if she could go to the bathroom. I said yes. She went to the bathroom. I put something in place to block her from closing and locking it. I kept an eye on the door while undressing. I told her when she came out to make sure that she was undressed. She left her sweater on. I started to remove it and she asked me not to, so I didn't. For some reason she asked that I leave the bedroom door open. Did it This relates to other times when I respected a victim's request. I handcuffed her, hands behind her back, I had her lay on the bed, and then I tied her feet and gagged her. I asked her if she had ever had sex in the butt with her boyfriend. I had no intention of normal rape sex or even sodomy. I wore no condom at that time, so actually to me it was mental rape or sodomy. That's all I needed. With a victim in bondage, the act of strangling brought gratific- gratification quickly, along with the victim struggling. I got on top of her, and then I reached over, took a belt, one of hers, you know, and then strangled her with it.
0: He apparently did not kill her immediately. He stopped and whispered in her ear that he is BTK, and that she was his next victim. This was his power trip. At this point, she tried to fight and stuck her nails into his balls and squeezed real hard, which only turned him on even more, because he's a sicko. He then tied a nylon stocking around her throat and arms, and masturbated into her blue nightgown, which was lying on the bed as she passed away. He stole some of her underwear, jewelry, and her driver's license. He said that he thought about giving some of this jewelry to his wife, but he decided against it. I mean, what? I'm never going to look at jewelry ever, ever the same way ever again. Like, where, did, where did you get this from? Do you have the receipt? Please show me the receipt. Mm, thank you. So what he did is he turned the heat up and he had another glass of water, cleaned the water glass off because he thought that was so cool. He was like, that was one of my things, man. Cutting the phone line and uh, having a glass of water, but they never picked up on the water thing. <laughs> anyway, so the next day he was just so excited about the murder, but there was no reports. So while he was at work, he drove the ADT van to p- to a payphone and he called the police. He said,
1: Yes you will find a homicide at 843 South Persian Nancy Fox.
0: He then left the phone hanging in the, shortly after he had walked away. A firefighter who was off duty actually picked up the receiver and the police were still on the line. And they were like, H- hello, who is this? And he was like, hey, uh, I just wanted to make a phone call. And they were like, who, who was here before you? And he said that he didn't take a good look at him, but he left the phone hanging. So unfortunately, I mean, he had to be like, questioned, but they realized he had nothing. The poor guy was just, you know, wrong time, wrong place. Raider uh, realized that he had been recognized with a phone call, and he did expect to be arrested, but no one came to arrest him. So at this point, he was like, I am untouchable. And as I said earlier, he then sent his Shirley locked poem to the news, and it was not published, which bothered him tremendously. So he decided to write another letter. This time to The TV station, K-A-K-E-TV or Cake TV. This letter included a drawing of a woman bound, gagged, and lying face down, just how he had left Nancy. It also included a poem. I don't like reading these because it's just, they hurt my soul, pretty much. O death to Nancy. What is this that I can see? cold icy hands taking hold of me, for death has come, you all can see, hell has opened its gate to trick me, oh death, oh death, can't you spare me over for another year, I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk, I'll bind your legs till you can't walk, I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand, and finally I'll close your eyes so you can't see, I'll bring sexual death unto you for me, and the letter said, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on the Byron and unamusing. A little paragraph would have been enough. T- I nom, it's not the news media fault. The police chief also spelled so badly. He keeps things quiet and doesn't let the public know they're a psycho running around loose strangling mostly women. There's seven in ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think all those deaths are not related. Golly gee. Yes, the MO is different in each, but look at the pattern developing. The victims are tie-up. Most have been women. Phone cut brings some bondage matter. Sadistic tendencies, no struggle. Outside the death spot, no witnesses, except the Vines kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. I was gong to tape the boys and put plastic bags over their head like I did Joseph and Shirley, and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy, then the rope took hold. She helpless. Staring at me with wide, terrible eyes, the rope getting tighter, tighter. You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of Factor X. The same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Glattman, Boston Strangler, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, Pantyho Strangler of Florida, Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast... And many more infamous character kill, which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It's a terrible nightmare, but you see, I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about life like anyone else. And I will be like that until the urge hit me again. It's not continuous, and I don't have a lot of time. It takes time to set a kill. One mistake and it all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, handwriting is out. Letter guide is too long and typewriter can be traced too. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing, later on real picture, and maybe a tape of the sound come your way. How will you know me? Before a murder or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep that copy. The original will show up someday on Guess Who. May you not be the unlucky one. P.S. How about some naming? name for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? BTK Strangler. Wichita Strangler. Poetic Strangler, the Bondage Strangler, or Psycho, the Wichita Hangman, the Wichita Executioner, the Garrot Phantom, the Asphyxiator. <laughs> Number five, you guess motive and victim. Number six, you found one Shirley Vane by and lying down on an unmade bed in northeast bedroom, hand-tied behind back with black tape and cord, feet and ankles with black tape and legs, and legs, oh gosh, ankles tied to waist and head of the bed with small off-white wrap-around legs, hands, arm. finally the neck, many times a off-white plastic bag over her head loop on with a pink nightie was barefooted, she was sick use a glass of water and smoke I smoke I or two uh, one or two cigarette house, a total mess, kids took some toys with them to the bathroom bed against east bathroom door chose at random with some pre-plan motive, back to eggs one, number seven one nancy box lying belly down on maid bed in southwest bedroom. Hands tied behind back with red pantyhose. Feet together with yellow nightie. Semi-nude with pink sweater and bra, small necklace, and bra, small necklace. Glasses on waist dresser. Panties below butt, many different than the ho- hosiery. She had a smoke and went to the bathroom before the final act. Very neat housekeeper and dressed, dresser rifled Persian what? Pur Sane Kitchen. Empty paper bag. White coat in living room. Heat up to about 90 degrees. Christmas tree lights on. 90s and hose around the room. Hose bag of orange color and it, it. Color it and hosiery on bed. Driver license gone. Seminal stain on or in blue woman wear. Chose at random with little pre-failing. Motive factor X. Next victim maybe. you will find her hanging with a wire noose. Hands behind back with black tape or cord. Feet with tape or cord. Gagged, then cord around the body to the neck. Hooded, maybe. Possibly seminal stain in anus or on body. Will be chosen at random. Some pre-planning motive back to X. Jeez. I mean, that was hard to read because of the content. But also just because, wow, if you could see how badly this was written. And this I just screenshotted because I wasn't going to retype all those dodgy um, spelling errors. So he said later that he actually used the spelling errors and bad grammar on purpose. B- mm-hmm. Sure, Denna. Sure. You weren't just a dumb moron. Doofus. Anyway, shortly after he wrote this letter to the news and the police, he went quiet again. The police were growing very frustrated because they, you know, they had just announced that there was a serial killer in town and he was just so freaking difficult to catch because he was so freaking unpredictable. So normally, if a serial killer is around, they stick to one M.O. Or, you know, they have a certain preference to what they want their victims to look like. And they normally, like, they don't stop for years at a time. They normally have a cooling off period and then they carry on. But it's normally like women with long dark brown hair or men with that are at least six feet. I don't know. But Dennis was the opposite of all that. He was erratic in every way and he was able to somehow split it, his home life from his killer life, like a professional. It was almost like he was two different people, but the thing is, they did so many tests, he wasn't, it wasn't. Anyway, his daughter was born in June of that year, uh, which led to his next very long break. On the 28th of April in 1979, more than a year after BTK's last letter, A 63-year-old widow named Anna Williams arrived home at about 11 p.m. from a night out square dancing. It's so cute. I freaking love it when people, like, when elder folk are like, I'm going square dancing or I'm going to go do my line dancing. It's like, oh, okay, granny, go do it. It's so cute. Then when she got home, she noticed that her door was open, and when she walked into her room, she saw that her drawers had been strewn about and a couple items were missing, and when she tried to call the police, she realized that her phone line had been cut so she immediately ran out of the house she was like nah i'm out i'm done i don't have time for this ain't nobody got time for that i agree anna. good job so weeks later on the 14th of june a man had mailed a package to cake tv and he mailed a similar package to anna williams anna's package contained one of her own scarves and a piece of her own jewelry and there was a sketch of a gagged woman on a bed, her hands and te- feet tied to a pole. There was also a poem, which I'm going to read again, so bear with me. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? T'was perfect plan of deviant pleasure, so bold on that spring night, my inner feeling, hot with propension of the new awakening season, born, wet with inner fear and rapture, My pleasure of entanglement, like new vines, so tight. Oh, A, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear, fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness to sink the lofty fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the games we play fall on devil ears. Fantasy spring forth mounts to storm fury, then winter clam at the end. Oh, A, why didn't you appear alone? Now in another time span, I lay with sweet enrapture garments across most private thought. Bed of spring moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind scenting the air, sunlight sparkle, tears in eyes so deep and clear. Alone again, I trod in past memories of mirrors, and ponder why you number eight was not. Oh, A, why didn't you appear? After this, there was a BTK signature where the B was turned and made to look like eyeglasses with the T and K conjoined to something like a smile. I don't know. Later, it was changed to the B resembling breasts and the T and K resemble arms and legs. So the police wondered why BTK would be drawn to Anna because she was so much older than his usual victim type. And then they speculated that maybe he could have actually seen her 24-year-old granddaughter and perhaps confused the two. Anna did not stay in town long enough to find out. She was like, I'm out of here, cheers. Packed her stuff in the air, which is exactly the right thing to do. Like, you, you... if you had to receive a letter like that, would you stay? No, he knows you. He's been in your house. He had your stuff. Uh-uh. I would leave immediately, change my name, change my address. You know what, it. I would, I would go to the moon. Screw you, Dennis. Oh. So, Dennis was caught by his wife forming his auto-erotic asphyxiation in the past. And he was caught again at about this time. So, the first time he was caught, he thought he was going to be alone. And then she sort of walked in. He was like, oh my gosh, it's not what I look like. And she was like, what in the hell? He was wearing women's underwear, trying to strangle himself, also a full-on boner. And this time around, she was like, I'm going to divorce you because I do not understand why you want to dress up in women's clothes and also nearly strangle yourself to death to achieve all that. So he had to explain it to her that, that he wouldn't do it in the house again. And what she did is she got him a self-help book and she was like, we're going to try and work on it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to fix you, babe. But, um, yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to get fixed. He went on business a lot, which meant that he stayed in a lot of motels. And he would have what he called motel parties, when he stayed there, which is where he would take the paraphernalia from his little hidey holes, and he would do his self-satisfaction with bondage, and the whole thing in these motel rooms. So he would take photos, and he would also go out into like abandoned buildings and out into nature, and and also do his autoerotic asphyxiation there, so that uh, you know Paula wouldn't catch him doing his weird kinky stuff. There's so many photos of him in his gear, if you will, and I don't think I'll ever be the same again after seeing it. It's quite alarming to see, to say the least, because he would like rig a camera up to a string and then he would like strangle himself, take the photo, and then he would use that to to wank later. Anyway, the FBI profilers were called in and this is what they had to say about BTK. So they said the killer was sadistic, controlling, and superficial. He read detective magazines and pornography, enjoyed s practices with a partner, and he liked to drive around. He was a, a lone wolf type. His car would be ordinary. He would probably be in his mid-30s, and he would live within a few mile radius of the crime scenes, and probably had known one or more of the Oteros. He would do well in his job, which would allow him to wear a uniform, but would stay only temporarily employed. He probably had military training and an interest in law enforcement, and he carried weapons. Others would notice that he was critical of the cops and the investigation. Which is not that far off. I mean, think about it. He loved detective magazines. He enjoyed SM practices with not his partner, but like he was into it. He loved driving around. He described himself as an old wolf. His car was ordinary. He was in his mid 30s. He did live within a few mile radius of the crime scene. He didn't know the Oteros. He did well in his job. He wore a uniform in his job. And he was super interested in law enforcement. I mean, he studied administration of justice because he wanted to be a cop. And he also was in the Air Force. I mean, that's a pretty freaking almost spot on thing. I'm just saying, Profiling Man. I miss Criminal Minds so much. It was one of my favorite shows. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, Spencer Reed. Hmm. Distracted. At this point, he was getting antsy again, and BTK struck again on the 26th of April, 1985. His victim was a 53-year-old lady named Marine Hedge. She lived in the same neighborhood as Dennis Rader, like, I think within the same street, almost. Like they stayed in a small little town, so everyone knew each other. And often, she would smile at him and say, Hello! When he walked past and he would smile and say, hello, back. Marine lived alone and Raider was into this. And he often thought that it was risky striking so close to home, but he also decided to change things up a bit. You know, he decided that he was going to use his son's scout camp weekend as an alibi of sorts. So this is how Raider described his eighth murder. It's just so much easier to do it in his own words just because of you know, you can sort of get into his head and sort of understand what he thought about and things. So, I don't think I'm being lazy. I just think it's way more interesting to do it from his perspective.
1: That day, I parked up on the hill or the roadside near the camp so I could leave and come back unnoticed. I had my head hip in a bowling bag I had bought at a garage sale. I'd kept it in my workshop.
0: He told the boys and other leaders that he had a headache and wanted to retire early. He then went to his car, drove away, changed from his scouting, formed into regular clothes, and prepared his head kit. Parking at a bowling alley on Woodlawn and 21st, he went inside and ordered a beer.
1: In the bowling alley, I pretended to be a bowler. At one point, some people I knew from Park City came in. I had to stay away from their sight, for I think they were part of the scouting program or members of my church. I was getting good at play acting, and was quick to invent on-the-spot routers. I went there under the pretense of bowling. I called a taxi to come and take me out to Park City. I took some beer and washed it around my mouth and splashed some on my face for a ruse that I was too drunk to drive. And that I could probably smell alcohol at me. Oh, fuck, neighbor. When we approached my neighborhood, I told him to let me out so I could get some fresh air. And I walked from where the taxi let me off over to her house. I was on West Park View, one block away. Behind my house at 622 Independence. 6220, Wow. Independence, and her home was a small park for mobile homes a creek ran through it by my place. to gain access and keep away from the park's lighted entrance i used my indoors yard they only lived a few houses north of my place. i was going to have sexual fantasy so i bought my head kit. and lo and behold her car was there i thought gee she's not supposed to be home But the house was dark i could not turn back because i needed the car to get back to the bowling alley where my car was i had a backup fan i had an old bike and a bike back to the bowling alley, but it would have been a long ride in the dark. So I cut the phone line and very carefully snapped into the house, kind of like a cat burglar. That takes a long time. You can't make noise getting in or on stairs.
0: Knowing that Hedge's house was similar in layout to his, he was confident of where he could enter.
1: About the time I reached her bedroom and discovered she was not home, I heard a car door stand and voices. She had those hanging beads at the entrance of her hallway. I rushed through them. They were moving as she and her friend started to enter. I quickly tried to stop that movement so she wouldn't notice, and moved to the southeast bedroom, a spare room closet. I hid there. Her friend was there for about an hour. I waited till the wee hours of the morning. I then proceeded to sneak into her bedroom. She didn't wake up. I flipped the lights on in the bathroom. She woke up and screamed, and I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually. She tried to fight, but she was no match. I would have taken her out of the house house alive, gagged and in handcuffs, if I could have. But things didn't work out that way. The goal was to get pictures. After that, since I was in the sexual fantasy, I went ahead and stripped her and tied her up. I put handcuffs on, I put her on a blanket and went through her purse. I needed the car key and took some personal items in the house while I figured out how I was going to get her out of there. I went to the kitchen and got a glass of water, also my trademark. I carefully wiped it clean and put it back. Eventually, I moved her to the trunk of the car.
0: Dennis Rader then took marine hedges five-foot body to the Christ Lutheran Church and he tied her into different bondage positions and, t- and took photos of her in these positions. In the church. I mean, he did a BDSM photo shoot with a dead woman in his church like a sicko. Freaking disgusting. But he did have to hurry because, you know, a night is short and he needed to get back to camp. Because remember, he's still a loving, devoted father who happens to currently have a headache at camp. <laughs> So he finishes up with his disgusting photo shoot, and then he dumped Maureen's body in a ditch. He left the rope around her neck at this point, and he also then dumped more items as he drove her car to where he had parked his own car. He drove his own car back to the camp and carried on with his life. He said that the body was not discovered immediately, so he actually drove back and removed the rope so that he, like she couldn't be connected to her to his other crimes. I mean, this guy just gets away with everything he gets away with murder. literally Yes. So her body was only found nine days later. It was decomposing and decomposing, and animals had eaten bits of her. Her car had been found at a nearby shopping center. Police had a brief thought that maybe this could have been BTK, but there was just too many differences for them to say for sure. For one, Marine was an elder lady, and they knew BTK liked his woman younger. Number two, she was taken outside of her home. And number three, her phone line wasn't cut. So they were like, oh, I don't know. Mm, let's just sort of keep that on the back burner, hey? So yeah, I'm not done. I am not done with this monster's horrendous crime. It's insane how gross he is. I promise we're nearly done with the murders. And then in the last part, I'll talk about how he managed to get caught by the cops 30 years after he started killing So, you know, just push through with me. Just push through. There's only a couple left. So for his next hit, Dennis decided that he would strike again. But during his lunchtime, he's a freaking madman. Anyway, he spotted a woman named Vicky Vacherol and her toddler child one day while he was driving around, and he decided that she was the one. Side note, every single person that says this lot name says it differently. I'm saying it how I read it the first time. Also, I have a friend on Facebook with the surname and this is how they pronounce it, so (laughs) I'm gonna, I must be right. (laughs) Kidding, it's just, that's how I'm gonna do it. Uh, I've heard Wegerly, Wegerl, but I'm going with Backlittle. Vicky would stay at home and look after the baby while her husband went to work and she would often play piano at home, so to Dennis, this was Project Piano. Anyways, Dennis came up with the idea that his ruse would be that he was a telephone repairman. He even, he took his ADT business card, and modified that a little bit. And then he had a helmet, which he also used, uh, like a safety helmet, but he used for ADT jobs. And he took an actual telephone repair company's logo, cut it out, and stuck it on with some tape. So he went through a lot of effort for this. So the date was 16th of September, 1986. He started his ruse by first going to the neighbours and asking them questions about their phones. Because, you know, acting. He then knocked on her door. And asked if he could go inside and take a look at her phone. She led him into the house and he pretended to do something with the phone. With a little gadget thing and a jiggy that he had made. And when Vicky turned her back on him, he pulled out his gun. She started crying. And he told her to go to the bedroom, which she did. She told him that her husband would be home soon for lunch. And Reda didn't like this, obviously, because it meant he had to rush. So he tied her arms and legs to the bed. And she actually broke through the tires. And she fought him and scratched his face but he did finally manage to hold her down and he tied a pair of pantyhose around her neck and he strangled her with those. He also said that she fought like a hellcat. So good for you, Vicky. He undid her pants, lifted her shirt and took three photos of her body. Then he got in her car and he drove away. Vicky's husband, Bill, was on his way home for, for lunch when he saw a car that looked suspiciously like his own car driving in the opposite direction. And he was like, weird. And carried on. When he got home, he saw that his baby was in the crib, but he couldn't find Vicky. So her her body was between the bed and the cabinet, so you couldn't actually see it if you just walked past the room. And he thought maybe she ran to the store or something. So he made himself some lunch, and only forty-five minutes later he started being like, oh, this is a bit weird, and he actually went and looked properly through the house, and that's when he found her body in the bedroom, and he called 911. So poor Bill was actually, the main suspect in his wife's murder for a very long time. The police actually gave him a lie detector test, which he was like, yeah, because he was innocent. But he ended up failing the lie detector test, lie, detective? lie detector test, I think, three times? Oh, twice. twice. He failed the polygraph test twice. So they were like, oh, he's definitely done it. But at this point, they actually didn't realize that somebody who was just that had just experienced a really terrible loss you know they their bodies are going through some stuff it's like shock so they're gonna fail a lie detector test it's just what happens so anyway they were pretty much like 100% sure it was him so they kept an eye on him and he actually stayed the main suspect in his wife's murder for an incredibly long time the head detective, Kenny Landwehr, was sure that it wasn't the husband, but you know the evidence pointed to him. But they couldn't arrest him either because there wasn't enough evidence. So they pretty much left him, and he pretty much wrote the cops off. At this point, they had made a task force, it was a police task force, they had made it before and they called themselves the Ghostbusters, which is kind of cute, and it had Mostly sort of broken at this point like they had been reassigned and only Kenny Landwehr had remained and What he did is he had packed all the files in his cabinet cabinet. There was 37 boxes of case files on BTK and Kenny Landwehr would not give up on this case and he he knew that You know if he ever did resurface he would have all of this information and he would know about it, and then he would be able to catch it. And he actually ended up telling somebody else about it, and a couple of people stayed interested in the case. At this point, there was another murder in 1987. A woman named Mary Fager, who had been out of town visiting relatives, arrived home, and she discovered her husband and daughters were dead. Sherry, 16, was drowned in the hot tub. Kelly, who was 9, was strangled hours later and dumped in the tub with her sister and their father philip had been shot in the back so they were like oh this must be btk even btk saw this and he was like oh okay and a few days after her husband and daughters were murdered mary fager opened her mail and read the first line of a rambling taunting poem from an anonymous sender that said another one prowls the deep abyss of lewd thoughts and deeds oh god he put kelly and sherry in the tub sun and body, drewing with sweat, water, feminine navette. Ne- the builder will christen the tub with the bur- burren maids. And there was a sketch of somebody which they realized was not correct in terms of what had happened. And Dennis Rader actually said that he did send this letter, but it was just because he felt like spreading fear and playing cat and mouse with the cops. That happened. I don't know if they ever caught it, who did it, but he wanted to be known as this big scary evil monster, which he was. But you know, carried on with his life. He just didn't really do much, you know, until he found Dolores Davis, who would be his last victim. She was an elderly lady and she had just retired for a few months. At this point, Dennis needed to do the thing again. He said that he tried to get work as a police officer because at this point he had lost his job with ADT. He was feeling low and disturbed. He, also, you know, he just didn't have a job. He wasn't, done, he wasn't studying anymore. He finished with that. So he said he tried to get a job as a police officer. He tried to apply at Wichita PD, Sheriff's Department and the Highway Patrol and all three turned him down. So they didn't give him a reason, but he thinks that was his age. I think they knew deep down inside. That little that little voice was like Mm he's a bad guy, don't please don't do it. Don't hire him. So yeah. I just thought that was an interesting an interesting thing. On the nineteenth of january nineteen ninety one, he struck again. He had seen Dolores Davis around, and he scoped her out, he stalked her, he did all that stuff. She lived on a hillside, and there were dog kennels near her home, so she was Project Dogside. At this time, Raider was nearly 46 years old, so now he was engaging, you know, but his urge to kill had been growing. And finally, he was like, I can't do the motel parties anymore, I'm bored of those. Yeah, you know, I need a I need to do something. Over four years had passed since his last success with Vicky. So he needed to reaffirm himself. He prepared his pet kit. So what he did is in the winter time the scouts had their nice little camping thing and he was like, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do what I did last I'm gonna use this as a alibi and that's it. So what he did is he actually got to the camp early, set everything up. You know, because look at him. He's just so organized. And when the others arrived, he was like, I just forgot something back in town. So he he was like, I'm going to quickly go get it. So he went to his parents' house because they were on vacation. He dressed into his head clothes in the basement. And he then like hit his vehicle, checked his list, (laughs) and he drove to the Baptist church and parked there. So... What they did, what he did, sorry, is that he tried to do the cat burglar thing and it was cold and he was like, I don't have time. So he just literally took a cinder block and threw it through the sliding door and made a huge noise. So Dolores ran out and she was like, did you you hit my house with your car? You know, this poor woman got such a fright. So he said that he used the same ruse that he was wanted. They're after him. He needs the warm car money. I'm just going to tie you up and I'm going to leave you. I'm going to just spend a little time here because I need to get warm, but I'm going to take your car and some food. So at this point, he was carrying a big club and she was like, you have to leave. I'm expecting something. So she was like, so Dennis said, ma'am, you're going to have to cooperate. I've got a club. I've got a gun. I've got a knife. I suggest you do. You take your choice how you want it. So she said that she was expecting someone, as I said, and he got very frustrated because he just couldn't enjoy himself. So what he did is he handcuffed her in the bedroom. She complained the whole time. Once she was secured, he pulled out the the phone line. And he just sort of talked to her and pretended to go get some food. You know, acting again. And then when he came back into the bedroom, he asked about the vehicle. And she actually said she actually said that she had new shoes and asked if he would take them out before taking her car. So he did. He went and he got the shoes, took it back to the bedroom. And at that point, he took her handcuffs off and retied pantyhose around her arms. And that's when she realized he was going to kill her. She was on her tummy and he was on top of her. And he then started strangling her with the pantyhose over her neck. And that was it. So what he did is he then took her again and put her in the car, and then he drove to where he had put his car, and he hid some stuff in the church and all that kind of stuff. He realized his gun was missing because he's a moron, so he was like, huh, crap. So then he drove back, dropped off a few more things, and then he went back to her place, parked inside, and realized that the gun had dropped when he broke the the window so he quickly picked his gun up and he and he ran back to the car so then he took her body in his car and he placed it in a under a bridge and he left it there on the second night so he went back to the camp and then he went the second night he was like oh God, i've got a bad headache and he quickly said that he had to go home to get some pills. so he then Drove there, because there was no news about this, changed clothes in a restroom. And then a highway patrolman stopped him and was like, uh, sorry, dude, what are you doing? Why are you changing clothes? Because at that point, the, a call had been made because she was missing and it looked like a breaking and entering in her property. And he was like, oh, I'm just changing into my, my scout clothes. I've got a camp down the road. And the guy, the highway patrolman, said, oh, okay, no, we were just told to look if people were changing clothes and if they were just, like, looking a bit odd. So he was like, oh, no, I just had to quickly do this. I'm so sorry. And, yeah, <laughs> if, if the patrolman had actually looked in his car, he would have seen her jewelry box, her camera, and a porcelain mask. Anyway, he went. He left the desk, the rest stop, went to her body, and he started taking photos of her. He put the mask over her face because he said that her haircut was just a little bit too boyish for him. So he wanted to make her a little bit more female. What? Anyway, ah, oh, it just makes me so mad. And then he um took the photos and, and left. and And that was it. He saw the helicopter looking around to see if they could find her body. And yeah. Her body was eventually found, and it was a disturbing scene. Um, I've seen some of the photos, the prancing scene photos. And he says that he did steal some of her clothes, and he does use those clothes for his basement parties, because he's disgusting. And, uh, yeah, there, there are a couple of photos of him in self-bondage with a mask that looks eerily similar to the mask that was found on Dolores' body. So, I don't know. Was it the same mask? He says no, but I say yes. I think it was. So in May 1991, Raider had managed to land a full-time job as a compliance officer for Park City, which means that he would be doing pet control, yard maintenance control, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was like a law enforcement role, but just like, you know that kid in school who was like the hall monitor, who was just, I think I was that kid, but <laughs> the one who would just like tell on people, like, mm, "That's not right. You can't do that. No, he was that guy. If He would have a ruler, and he would measure people's grass to make sure that it was the right thing. Yeah. He also, like, if people's dogs were unruly, he would literally take them to the pound and get them taken down. I mean, put down. W- which is disgusting. He was a monster, and nobody liked him at this point. They were like, that far No, man. He's just not. He's just not a Orba. He's not on. He would write so many little fines for people for the most... Obnoxious things like I don't understand. (laughs) And for him, he's like this massive freaking criminal, and yet he would like give people fines for having slightly long grass and a dog that barks once or twice. I think that I am going to leave it here for this episode. In the last episode, I will be talking about how Dennis was caught and. Which is hilarious, by the way. The way that it just ties in so perfectly, the way that he was caught is just chef's kiss. It was great. It's it's just the perfect end to this really terrible story. So, I hope that you wanna listen to it. Please follow me on social media on Facebook it is Cup of Taboo, Instagram, Cup of Taboo underscore podcast. My website is cup dot If you could go leave a review there, that would be amazing. There will also be some source material there, as well as some pictures, if you want to see that. i also put pictures on Instagram and Facebook. And, yeah, if you could subscribe on Reason.fm, that would also be great. And, I mean, yeah, let me know if there's any specific killers you want to hear about, or any hauntings, or anything like that. Or, if you've got haunting stories, I do really want to do, like, a haunting episode, because it's fun. So, yeah, if you guys have anything like that, please let me know. You can email me, cupoftaboo at gmail.com. You can comment on the Instagram post. You can send me a DM. Whatever, I don't care. I'm super easy and super keen for this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I hope the sound was slightly better in this episode than the last one. I am busy trying new things. I did get a different microphone, and I'm hoping that it works a little better. So, yeah, I hope you guys keep it real, and I will chat to you next time. Okay, goodbye. Bye. Now oh, bye bye.